Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we uh, are now beginning the run-up to Rosh Hashanah. So we're going to read this parsha this morning. We're also going to read it uh, during the holiday. Um, Reconstructionists, along with Reform Jews, read Parshat Nitzavim. This morning's parsha, we read it as an al- as an alternative to the reading on Yom Kippur, because uh, traditionally that reading is who is permitted to one sexually and who is not. And progressive Jews just did not find a terrible lot there for us <laughs> in terms of meaning for the holiday. So, um, so we will be reading Parshat Nitzavim again. And uh, so this is, this is a Parsha that we study a couple of times during the year. I want to um, dedicate this morning's Torah portion to the memory of those who were murdered on 9-11 uh, and to ask that their memories be for us a blessing. We, you know, when we think about, and, and I don't want to bring things to numbers, but it, it, you know, we were so aware of how many people died that day. And then I look at the television every day and see 190,000 people. And it just, it's like, it doesn't go in on some level. Um, but, you know, we, we are mourning. And uh, every 9-11, we mourn those who uh, were victims of hate and fear and violence of the worst kind, those who gave their lives taking down that plane in the field, those 40 amazing human beings who took down that plane and prevented more death by sacrificing themselves. Um, and we're very aware of that. And so I just, I try very hard to also be aware of what 190,000 looks like. So, uh, so we come this, this 9-11, this, this heavy day of remembrance for us to um, a Parsha that really is about how do we build a society that isn't like that? That's part of what Deuteronomy is coming to talk about, right? Is how do we build a society that treats everyone in such a way that we don't create terrorists, that we don't create people who feel like they have no choice uh, but to attack you know, the, the, the system, there, there will always be those people. I know that I'm not, I'm not that naive, but, but Deuteronomy is coming to address the same things that we're dealing with now. The, the same set of issues every human society deals with. I'm not saying our answers would be the same, but the Deuteronomist and Josiah and that whole project was really um, taking a situation that was falling apart already a civil war between the North and the South had weakened Israel to the place where the Neo-Assyrians conquered the Northern Kingdom. So that's when all of this is written, when it has already started to come apart. This is not a vision that comes out of like this new sense of hopefulness and a new sense of, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna build something new. They're dealing with something that's falling apart. So, so for me, I mean, one of the things I'm so aware of these days is I'm starting to get very anxious and I've been saying this for like six years, but it's gotten really worse. Um, I'm starting to get very anxious about how fractured this country is. I'm starting to get very anxious that even with an election, I am not sure there's not going to be stuff happening in the streets. This is the first time 
that there may not be, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be histrionic here, but this is the first time in our history that there may not be a peaceful transition of power. That is a very serious threat to our democracy. And, and look, I may be one of the ones on the street. I'm not trying to demonize somebody else. I'm telling you, I will be out there. <laughs> like if the results go a certain way, I will be in the streets too. And um, it just, because we're so polarized that neither side trusts the other, this is what led to the fall of the Northern Kingdom. It may have happened anyway. Neo-Assyria was a huge power in the region. It may have happened anyway, but had the country been united and focused on you know, protecting its boundaries and making alliances and doing those things as a united northern southern kingdom, they might have, I don't know, made a treaty. They might, they might have figured it out, but they were so busy fighting each other and competing uh, that they wound up losing the northern kingdom. And what we're looking at is the Deuteronomist who is trying to figure out, okay, this is what we have left how how do we structure things? How do we revive things? How do we reconstruct things in a way that's going to make this project uh, more viable, more doable? And that's what we have here. That's what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. You've heard me talk from Micha Goodman's standpoint. Um, I think maybe we're going to, we're going to cancel Torah study and meditation next week because it's Erev, it's uh, Rosh Hashanah Eve day. So it's just, there's just a lot happening for everybody. Um, but I think maybe the Friday after that, I will uh, bring you Micha's conclusion to Deuteronomy, which is post-Deuteronomy, right? The Deuteronomist ends and the project is beginning with Josiah uh, to, you know, to um, reconstruct Israelite Judean, really, because Israel fell, Judean society, um, but but the conclusion of the story doesn't happen in Deuteronomy, right? Because that's the beginning of the project. The, the story of Deuteronomy and what happened with that religious reform and that revival, that we have the story of that in 2 Kings 23. That's where we get the story. And as a preview, it ain't pretty. Right? The, the story ends essentially with exile. So really, if you read through two kings, this whole enterprise was a failure. The whole thing. The whole Israelite project was a failure. And so Micha has a whole lecture on, you know, what is that about? <laughs> you know, that we have this story that begins in Egypt and exile, you know, Abraham voluntarily leaves Mesopotamia. So, and, you know, kind of a leaving from Mesopotamia, and then the people leave Egypt. It's a double leave-taking that ends in, in the story of our nation, and in the end, they are exiled to Babylonia. So back to Mesopotamia, we're, we're exiled to Mesopotamia and to Egypt. There is an exile to Egypt. So the double leave-taking results in a double exile. And... Um, you know, so if you if you read the project, really the project was a failure, and so part part of the conversation really is what happened, and how do we avoid um, that same fate? But we're not there yet; <laughs> we're still in the book of Deuteronomy. So let's look at our at our text for the morning. No, I don't do that. No.
So this is the very famous Parshat Nitzavim. Many of you know it because if you sat in shul and followed along, you have read this over and over and over and over. But let's look at it from the context of how we've been studying the book of Deuteronomy. All right. Atem Nitzavim hayom kulchem lifnei Adonai Elohechem. All right. So Atem, you, plural, y'all. Nitzavim. Nitzav, we've talked a lot about this word, means um, it comes from the the word to what you do for a monument, how you erect a monument, that's the, that's the meaning of this word. Usually we would see omdim, you stand before, but this is not just to stand. This is to present oneself before uh, God. And uh, it actually comes, nitzav, uh, comes from the word for, what, what is it that holds the blade of the sword? Um, the hilt. The hilt. The hilt. So that's what the word comes from is, so if you think of holding a sword, right, the way that blade is in the hilt, what the hilt does, you know, that, that hilt is nitzah. So um, it is this sense of a, a very um, prominent standing that is purposeful, not just I happen to be standing up and standing in this spot. So atem, y'all, nitzavim, are presenting, essentially, hayom, today, Kulchem. So now we have a repetition of the U plural. And kol means all. Chem, y'all. So all y'all. So y'all are standing here today. All y'all. Lifnei Adonai Luhechem. Before Adonai your God. Roshechem, your heads. Shivtechem, your, your people who have, you know, serious positions. Ziknechem, your elders. Vishotrechem, your officials, kol ish Israel, every person of Israel. Tapchem, we don't usually see this. Tapchem, your children. Nishechem, oh, even the women, people, even the women were there. Vegercha asher bekerev machanecha, and the stranger that is in the midst of your camp. Mechotev etzecha, from the choppers of your Trees, your waters, ad shoev memecha, to the drawers of your water. For what? Why are they nitzavim hayom? Why are they standing here today? Le'ovrecha bivrit Adonai Elohecha. In order to, to cross over into the covenant of yud Vafe, your God, um, that God is concluding with you, that God is cutting with you, literally, uh, today. All right, so this, this piece, it's not an accident that we read it on the high holidays because the, many of our commentators ask, what is Hayom? What is today, this day? And many of the commentators answer, it is Rosh Hashanah, that this day is the big day, and it's the day where the covenant would be renewed. And so this is Rosh Hashanah. And so we read this at the High Holidays as an alternative reading because traditionally it's understood that this, I mean, it, you know, in, it, throughout different commentators in the tradition, it's understood that this is actually the, the High Holidays. So what, what is this whole, what's this covenant business about, right? Including its sanctions. What, what is it about in order that God may establish you this day as God's people, to be your God, as God said to you, and as God swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, 
I don't make this covenant only with y'all. So who is it made with? I make it also with those who are not here, Imanu, who are not here standing with us today before Yudhe our God, those who aren't here this day. Traditionally, according to rabbinic tradition, how can people who are not present be part of a covenanting ceremony? How can people who aren't there be read into the agreement? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So what, some people who refuse to come are implicated anyway? So that can't be, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So for the rabbis, for the tradition, this is indicating the generations that are not there yet. That the generations still to come are implicated by this covenant. The same way that I, because I was born to American citizens, I am an American citizen and I am bound by the rules, the rights, the obligations of being an American citizen. I didn't choose it. It is a privilege. It also comes with responsibilities and laws and all those things that I have to follow, that I'm obligated by whether I want to be or not, simply by being the next generation of my family. And so it is with the covenant. It was understood to be um, incumbent upon us as Jews, whether we were standing there that day or not. And the rabbis go all the way back and say that every single person who was ever going to be Jewish, it doesn't, doesn't matter how they were going to get to be Jewish, anybody who was ever going to be Jewish stood not only here, but stood at Sinai. That every single person who was ever going to be a member of the Jewish people stood at Sinai and answered yes to the covenant. You know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we passed through the midst of various other nations through which you passed. And you've seen the shikutsehem, um, the translation is detestable um, things, the fetishes of wood and stone, silver and gold that they keep. Perchance there is among you some man or woman or some clan or tribe whose heart is even now turning away from Yodhei our God, to go and worship the gods of those nations. Perchance there is among you a stock sprouting poison and wormwood. When such a one hears the words of these sanctions, he may fancy himself immune, thinking I shall be safe, though I follow my own willful heart to the utter ruin of moist and dry alike. God will never forgive him. Rather, God's anger and passion will rage against that person till every sanction recorded in this book comes down upon him and God blots out his name from under heaven. This is supposed to be scary. If it sounds terrible and horrible and scary and awful, it's supposed to be. This is a ritual that's supposed to scare you to death. God will single them out from all the tribes of Israel for misfortune in accordance with all the sanctions of the covenant recorded in this book of teaching. Notice, everything will come down on your head that's been talked about in this book as a curse, as a consequence. If in your heart you say, right, you're already starting to turn away and you think it won't matter, well, it's going to matter when, first of all, you get punished. But notice what's happening. Who's the one who does the punishing? Who's the one who knows your heart is turning away? There's no external authority. It's only God. 
So as scary as this is, you already have to believe there's a Yudhe who's going to make this happen or it's not very scary. Right? When they try to scare me about going to hell because I don't accept Jesus as my savior, it doesn't scare me because <laughs> I don't believe it. Right? It has no power over me. So this, this is only enforced by Yudhe Bhavhe. So someone who doesn't take seriously the relationship with Yudhe Bhavhe, this is not probably very effective. All right. So here we get all of the terrible, terrible, terrible consequences that will happen. And they will ask why. Why did this happen to our land? If God is in control of everything and is certainly in control of God's people and God's nation and God's house in Jerusalem, how could this happen? They will be told because they forsook the covenant that Yudhe God of their ancestors, made with them when he freed them from the land of Egypt. They turned to the service of other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not experienced and whom God had not allotted to them. Again, this is there's a lottery system, and other nations got other gods in that in that lottery. We got Yudhe for better or worse. That's what and for better or worse for Yudhe right? That we are there's lots of Midrashim where it's a lottery and God gets the people Israel in the lottery system. Um, I mean yeah, uh, you passed over this kind of quickly, but it really bothers me when it says God will never forgive them, which kind of runs counter to another strain in Judaism, which is that God does forgive. All right, well, we'll see that here too. All right, okay. we'll, we'll see that here too. Because it just... It, here you go. Here you go. Don't worry, Bert. Don't worry. Okay. Here we are. I want here some hope. I want Jack, some hope. Here we go. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Here we go. When all these things befall you, the blessings and the curse that I've set before you, you take them to heart amidst the various nations to which Adonai, your God, has banished you. Remember, this has already happened to the north. And you return, the Shavta Adonai Elohecha. When you return to Adonai, your God, you and your children, and heed God's command with all your heart and soul, just as I join you upon you this day, the Shav Adonai Elohecha, et Shivutecha, the Richamecha. Right then, God will will return you and will restore your fortune and take you back in rachamim in mercy, b'shav, and you will return, right, and will bring you together again from all the peoples where God, your God, has scattered you. Even if your outcasts are at the ends of the world, from there Yudhevafe, your God will gather you. From there, God will fetch you. And Yudhe your God, will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and God will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. And then Adonai, your God, will open up your heart. Actually, um, what is God going to do to the heart? Umal Yudhe Elohecha et Levavcha. God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, in order that you may live. So you can understand why this is, um, you can understand why this is read at the High Holidays, right? Why the rabbis were attached to this text and believed Hayom meant today, because we keep getting this word shuv, about return, the shav, that you will be returned, you will return. This is, this is the root of the word teshuvah, of repentance. Repentance implies we are returning to some place that we've been. 
So the idea of teshuva, the idea of repentance in Judaism, um, is not that we have some kind of conversion that changes us into somebody we've never been. That is not a Jewish concept. Teshuva is about a return to who we were originally, because the tradition assumes that originally we're connected to the divine. Originally, we are good, and we mean well, and we are trying to do good, um, and that we get, we get pulled off that path, and that's how we sin. That's how wrongdoing happens. We get pulled off the path. But, but, but we were originally on the path, and our work, and I'm not saying it's easy, it's not, and the tradition doesn't think it's easy, but the work, the spiritual work is to return to the derech, to the path. Um, and I think that's a very different orientation existentially from other traditions that kind of stress the, the sinful original nature of us is that we are sinners um, and that religion's here to, to keep us from ourselves. Our tradition is much more understands two parts of ourselves in conversation all the time, right? The Yetzirah Tov and the Yetzirah Ra, the good inclination and the evil inclination. But that in general, we want to be on the path. We want to be doing the right thing. We get pulled off, which is why the word chet, you know, sin is from archery to miss the mark. Because the tradition assumes that we're aiming true, we have things that pull us off and pull that arrow off the bullseye. And that is our language um, in old Hebrew for sinning. And so this whole idea is that teshuva is about return. And this text is all about that happening at the national level, which I have to say, it really does speak to me this year, these high holy days differently. How do we as a people, and I'm not talking as the Jewish people right now, I mean, that, that's a conversation too, don't get me wrong. Um, but how do we as a nation do teshuva? How do we come back to each other and to the derech, to the path of, you know, of a liberal democracy? How, how do we come back to that? And th that's the big question in this text. Will you do that as a nation or not? And if you don't, we got what's going to happen. Very clearly described and outlined for us in Kitavo in chapter 28, and as well as here. The consequences are, are, you know, you don't have to take this list. This list is scary, but it may not be so relevant. But we could certainly make a list, couldn't we, of what's going to befall us if this democracy fails, if we become so polarized that we either elect an authoritarian government or someone takes that election and enforces it, then fill in the blanks about what the curses, the consequences of us not figuring this out would be, right? And it's, it's pretty grim. It's pretty grim. And we've seen it in lots of other places. Nazi Germany is only one example, but there are many where liberal democracy failed and an authoritarian government is elected by the people, we've seen the horrible things that, that come in the wake of that. And so, um, so this Parsha feels, I know a lot of times people look at the Old Testament and talk about that wrathful, angry God and get really turned off by these texts. I am not turned off by these texts this year at all. I think it is 
<laughs> right? And Melinda saying, climate change sure looks like the Old Testament wrath of God. That, right? This year, breathing this smoky air out here, right? How dry everything is, how it could all go up in flame like that, while other places are being smacked at the same time with double hurricanes causing tornadoes everywhere. It's like monsoon happening some places, and it's so dry here that the whole thing could go up. So many plagues, Mehmet is saying, right? Climate change, we are causing Ten Commandments, the movie, style, right? Scale, size, plagues. Yes, that's on us. And Deuteronomy is talking directly to a people that is so polarized that half the nation is gone, gone. So imagine the East Coast is gone. All that's left is the Midwest and over to us, right? That, that's, what, that's who's writing this text, is what does the rest of this country have to do to not go the way that happened to them? But we don't even have to go to the East Coast as fallen. Just go to where we're at right now. And, for, and it resonates with me differently than it ever has before as we come to the high holidays. What is our national tshuva? Personal tshuva is hard enough. I get that. And as a community, right, as humanity in relationship to the natural world and the planet and the environment and, and the creatures that have no choice, that are being extinct, because we've made really terrible, selfish choices. Well, now we know. We know the consequences. There's no excuse now. We know the consequences of that behavior. So what about as, a, as humanity, what's our, what's our tshuva? But certainly right now as a country, I am really feeling the Deuteronomist's pain, the Deuteronomist's anxiety, the Deuteronomist's desperation. And Josiah believed it and bought completely into it. We can talk in a couple of weeks about why it failed, but, but he bought into this, and like they really started working on what they thought the solution was. Now, he had the ability to do that because he was the king, right? So, you know, Josiah with his folks had a little bit more you know, authority to do stuff than, than happens in a, in a liberal democracy because we have a bicameral legislature and an independent judiciary and all of those, well, presumably. Um, so all of those things. Um, and so it's a lot more laborious and a lot more cumbersome. But I feel like the, I feel this year the Deuteronomist's anxiety, right? Always before it was a scary text that you need to follow God's word or else. And I get that. And, and we've talked lots about the ancient Israelites relationship, right, to that concept and to covenant. But this year, I really do understand that this was a civics project. Now, of course, it was a theocracy, right? You didn't separate the covenant and the king of kings from, right, from the political system. So it's using religious language, but it's, it's absolutely a civics project talking about um, what does the nation need to do to make tshuva and to make the future of the, the, the Israelites staying in the land of Israel with sovereignty, what, what has to happen? Um, what kind of tshuva? has to happen for them to make it possible. And I think we are definitely, most definitely at that moment. I don't know how many of you are feeling it, but um, it, it's evident in every, even newscasters now. Have you noticed some, like I, I'm addicted to CNN. I know Robin, I know, I know. 
but so I'm watching CNN and even like, even the, the folks who are just, you know, you're, you're, I don't know if you saw um, Cuomo last night. Right. But he's like, I mean, they're jump, they're just jumping up and down now. Like they're, it's just, they are just incredulous that they are having to say some of the stuff they're saying and they're like doing this. And it's like, right when it's even, it was, it's everywhere now, that frustration, that incredible outrage on both sides of stuff. And, um, so anyway, so so for me, this parsha, this book uh, has so much more resonance than than it used to. All right, so I'm, I've talked a lot. I want to give someone else room to talk. Um, um, Amy, I love the um, inclusive introduction, inclusive language in the introduction. Um, it well, it certainly talks about the gear, which love, and then it says the wood choppers and the water drawers. These are clearly uh, men and women who equally contribute to life, making a life. And, and, and I love that part. And I think the, the solution of um, national or uh, people's teshuva lies in that, just to recognize the diversity, that every little fragment of the society is, is key to um, its overall success and happiness and wealth and peace. That's, that's how I see it. Beautiful. And those, and, and those those professions are almost like the opposite of what came before, which is the officials and the heads and the judges. So this is part of saying everybody. So this everybody is saying everybody down to the garbage collector, right? And the people who clean your toilets. That's that's the water that's the water bearer and the wood chopper. They were the lowliest jobs in the ancient Near Eastern system. Like nobody wanted those jobs. So, um, so not only the people who aren't like you, right? The gear, who's not you, who's not of you, who's not part of your family, but is part of your camp. So, you know, immigrants, you know, whoever it is that's hanging out with y'all that's not Israelite and every single member of the society was to be valued, and to your point, Mehmet, the text is very clear about it. And names, both the people that would be obvious, the heads of the tribes, the elders, you know, the, the folks with a lot of status, it names them, and it names the people you might think are excluded from that. And so Torah is very clear and very careful to, to name those people. The very ones we would say, well, surely it can't mean then fill in the blank, you know, about who's important, who's counted, who is one of you. And it's every individual. That's the other thing about this text. It's every individual that, that means something in terms of the covenant, that every single individual is addressed by the covenant and every individual needs to make the decision to embrace the terms and live into the terms of the covenant, including your women and children, right? That's that's a radical thing to say in the ancient Near East to say that women and children are counted in those who are obligated, but obligation is not just a bad thing. Obligation means you have responsibility, like that you count, that you matter. Um, I think you you were talking about our society today. One of the problems we have is we don't feel obligated by things unless we have personally gone and said, I buy in. And you were talking before about future generations, the whole sense of obligation that 
because my ancestors obligated themselves that somehow that has a claim on me. This whole thing of the, the 60s, do your own thing, etc. There's a sense of, well, if I didn't buy into it, then it has nothing to do with me. Right. And, and this is not saying that at all. This is saying the opposite. <laughs> right. This is part, right. And, and that's part of the sickness of our age that we have just become, it's only about me. It's only about what I've decided to buy into and that obligation is uh, not an obligation. <laughs> that obligation is optional. Right. And, and, um, and uh, it just left my head. Yeah, I was going to what you were saying, Bert, about, um, oh, I know. Uh, so Donia Hartman talks about choosing a Jewish identity is about choosing to be encumbered by other Jews. And so he talks about encumbrance as a value, as a supreme value, and that he knows that there's a connotation in English. He's a very beautiful English speaker. <laughs> and he, he, knows, he knows what that word means in American parlance, that, that it implies something that we don't necessarily want. And that's why he uses the word. He says, we choose to be encumbered by each other. And so for me, it's related to this idea that we are, we are born into an obligation, right? As whether it's citizens or as Jews, I had a young Jew in my office. We were having a friendly, pretty uh, animated argument about, I know it's hard to believe I could get animated, but, um, but we were having this argument and I was getting pretty activated because the young person was saying, you can't claim me if I don't want to be claimed. You keep saying, this is my Jewish home. You don't get to tell me I'm a Jew. And I said, yes, oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> and he's like, no, you can't. You don't get it. If that's not my identity, it doesn't matter that I was born to Jewish parents and raised as a Jew. If that's not my identity, and I said, oh, see, that's where you're so wrong. Because we get to claim you. You don't ever have to come home, ever. But we get to claim that this is your Jewish home and that you are always welcome here and that this is a place for you to come back to and that we claim you as ours. You don't have to do anything with that. We still get to claim you. And it was this huge argument and we couldn't resolve it because I realized we were coming from completely different worldviews. If you see your identity as something you create and you choose and you opt into what am I going to say? Nuh-uh. <laughs> right? So, but that's a very different worldview, right, from, from how some of us were raised, certainly, um, but also how we see the world, that we, we are born encumbered. We are. As human beings, we are born encumbered by one another, whether that's our family of origin or something that we sign on to, our identity as Americans, our identity, because it's Kaplan now, right, our American our American identity, our Jewish identity that are in conversation with each other. My identity as a woman, you know, these days as a LGBTQ plus person, like whatever it is, we are born encumbered. And, you know, of course we have to choose what we do with those identities, but this sense of obligation is real for a lot of us. Right? And so part of it is what is our obligation to each other. I mean, I think that's one of the, the things we're really struggling with right now uh, in, this, in this country is what, what are our obligations to each other and to the um, American project? 
All right, I hear Jody's hand is up and Judith Evick's hand is up. Jody? Um, I just love this portion. <laughs> but, uh, it reminds me actually of meditation because when it talks about if you sin or you don't believe for a while, the actual work is you coming back. And I know you always talk about this in meditation, and that's what I've always learned. It isn't that we're supposed to just have a, a, a clear mind and never have a thought, but it's when we find ourselves following that thought, the work is to come back, to just focus on the breath. So this whole portion makes so much of meditation because that's where the work is. Right. No one is born and, and continues on their life. I mean, maybe some people do, you know, but um, I know that is just pure as the driven snow and focused all the time. Um, but, you know, the work is coming back. That is the work. So I love brain it. science tells us that all of the benefits from meditation happen actually at the moment where our attention starts to wander and we pull the attention back. When we do teshuva, brain science tells us that's what causes all the positive effects of meditation. It's not, it's not when we're sitting like with nothing going on. I mean, that's lovely, but that's not, that's not the point. The point is teshuva. The point is, right, is strengthening those muscles of return because that builds the capacity for choice for the rest of the situation when we're in the grocery store and my line stops, I always use that one because it always happens. Right? <laughs> my line stops and it's like we have more capacity to choose how to respond to that when we have strengthened the muscles of chuva of returning the attention. Cause I can choose to say, Amy, do you want to get crazy right now? Cause that's an option, <laughs> right? Is that where you want to go? It always stops with me. How come it's always my lane out? Right. Oh, I knew I should have gone to aisle five. Like we can go there or we can choose to say, all right, so now you have five minutes that you didn't expect to be able to read people magazine. So right, <laughs> it's all good. Um, uh, there was something I wanted to say about, uh, about mindfulness. Yeah. So in our spiritual tradition, this, the spiritual part of our tradition sees this as a teaching because of course it means what it means, the pshat, the regular level, but the mystical interpretation of these words and concepts for our tradition is that it's all the parts of ourselves that need to stand before God. Mm. That it's like, we usually think of the holy part of me, the good part of me, the loving, compassionate part of me, but not that part of me. She doesn't have anything to do with connection with Yodhei Buffet, not her. I, I call her Agnes. We were told to give our inner voice and our inner critic a name. So, you know, Agnes has nothing to do with standing before God, right? So, but actually the teaching is, yeah, that's the work to bring the multivocality, the part like what Shefa Gold calls the parliament of the personality to bring all of those aspects of the self forward um, to stand before God, that, that, that is the real work, um, is to be able to stand before God and enter the covenant with the fullness of who we are, with the all, even the woodchopper and the water drawer in us, them too, the ones we would put at the lowest part of the totem pole, that part of us as well, the part of us we want to split off, the part of us we're ashamed of, the part of us we don't want to recognize, even that part of us has to be brought before the Holy One um, if we are to truly uh, live into the covenant.
Judith? On the issue of, of it being a commitment that has to be renewed and that we don't have a choice about, really, if we're Jewish, I cannot tell you how many times people have said to me when they find out I converted, why in heaven's name would you do that? And I think it's because of the fear of that commitment. Uh, people realize it's a strenuous, arduous journey to commit to the, the way of life that this propels you toward. So I, I find that the reaffirmation every time we meditate is a reminder of why and how important it is that we do reaffirm. Every morning when I wake up and say my Modani prayer, it's a reaffirmation of that commitment. That's, I think, Bert so loves doing sessions on the prayers because those are all reaffirmations of that connection that we have. Great. Thank you, Judith. George? Yes, two points. Uh, one is the return. It's uh, reincarnation without dying, that we're going back uh, and, and getting a new person within ourselves. So that's one point. The other one is that the census in the United States includes all residences, all, all people who reside here including illegals or whatever term. And this is, uh, this section also says that we should include the stranger in our accounts, in our, in our possessions. And of course, people have objected to that. Certain people have objected to uh, Right. So thank you for, um, right, for reminding you know, us that, that these you know, categories are still alive and well you know, today in terms of who's counted, right? Who makes that list and who doesn't? Um, and so, uh, right, that in our census that we count uh, undocumented um, folks as well who are here, very important. Um, and I love that, reincarnation without dying, right? That's kind of the idea of tshuva. It's very true. It's, um, you know, that we, we re-soulify, we re-selfify, right? Vayinafash, you will, you will rest and you will re-soulify. And I think that that's a, that's a very beautiful way to say it. Bob? Uh, getting back to your concerns about the U.S. and the fact that um, uh, we're so polarized, and this really goes to Israel and, you know, so many countries, um, the, the polarized groups that have developed are very much um, circled around identity politics. So people that are rural, people that are um, uh, Christian conservatives, people who have certain identifying characteristics um, are in one group and are not going to come out of one group regardless. So unfortunately, I think we're seeing the U.S. break into uh, two prime categories that are not going to meet in the middle. And I think your, your concerns, I don't see America quickly returning if we were ever there to a country with more unanimity of purpose. So I, um, I think what I am most distressed about is that you know, democracy is about what is it they call the consent of the losers, 
Um, and I feel like we, we at least, however deep our differences were, and they, and they were deep differences. It ran pretty, right, scary and pretty deep. Racism, anti-Semitism, you know, whatever. Anti-Indigenous people. Um, whatever it is, it's this been a deep division in the past. There was, there was some kind of agreement and understanding that this still was a project that everybody signed on to, knowing that the, 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 the locus of power was going to shift every four to every eight years. And, and I'm not saying that everybody was, was in agreement. There was an agreement, though, to disagree. There was an agreement that I, as the loser, consent to be governed by the winners, even if I disagree with their platform, because I know in four or eight years, there's the opportunity for another transfer, a peaceful transfer of power. I feel like that, that agreement to buy into the project is slipping. Like I could be wrong, but I, I don't know. I feel like the, the, the primary commitment to getting it that the other party may rule, you know, and I just have to suck it up and work at the edges and work at the margins and work on local elections and work on propositions and work on passing certain laws that, that that's the way I work until my party's back in power. There's some kind of original originating agreement that I feel like is absolutely threatened right now. I don't know how to articulate it. I'm not doing a very good job, but um, I think you're right. You, you put a, a book in the chat. Like I need to start reading something that gives me better language to talk about this. But I feel like there's something fundamental that has shifted around identity politics or whatever that says not oh, here. Here's part of what it is that I've heard articulated is it's not only that my identity politics put me in a different camp than you and I'm never coming out of it and you're never coming out of yours. Now the other, whatever the other is, is an existential threat to my existence. It's that's new. That it's existential now, right? Helena is saying she believes our constitutional democracy is being threatened. I mean, so so it's not just me who's who's got this sense. And I mean, I'm not smart enough to ha you know to be the one to think of it first. I'm just saying it's um, it, it's become existential that you being who you are is threatening to me and my way of life. And that brings forward a response that's different than we disagree. And I'm going to wait till I have a chance to vote and, and turn this whole thing over and work for that day until then. It's almost like, I don't know, it's just, it's very scary. I'm, there's, it's a very very chilling, scary. there's a very chilling point that this Ezra Klein makes, that the type of democracy we have in the United States is unique and has been tried in other countries and has never succeeded. The, the only democracies that succeed in numerous countries are um, uh, parliamentary democracies. The United States kind of democracy, the adversarial nature of it has not been successful in other countries. Right. And that's a bit scary when you talk about you know, what's coming up. And when right. you talk about return, the key is to return to what we would consider constitutional democracies and treating each group with grace and not, not with animosity. Right. And so David Russo just raised that point too. Like how do we, maybe a white, when we want, whites aren't going to be the majority in this country. 
pretty soon. So it's, it's not even going to be a white majority country living with lots of minorities in it. But um, it's uh, that. But the parliamentary system, anybody who's been following Israeli politics and has lived over there for any amount of time, I can tell you, it is insane. It's insane how much power some of these fringe groups have to hijack the whole thing because they hold three key seats and then you can't win as the prime minister without courting them and getting into bed with them. People you find disgusting, their, their platform, you get in bed with them because you need their votes and they have a, an incredible amount of power. So it's, I mean, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying they're, they, they each have absolutely crazy, um, you know, results that happen. James Lieberfarb. I put in, thank you, Rabbi Amy, um, I put in the chat, I highly recommend reading uh, Thomas Friedman's op-ed from this past Wednesday's New York Times. Um, it's, it's titled, uh, how, how can win, how, who can win America's politics of humiliation, you know, and without going, I, I've read parts of it, I have to read it, read it through, but you know, one of the things where I, what he brings out is the ability for people to listen to other people. You know, um, the thing that what the current occupant of the White Hat, it's the people who are his base, they like that he skewers the people that they hate. But it also he brings out about us listening to these people. Yeah, I, I am quick to judge and, you know, who are these people? But when, it, you know, I'd like to believe, you know, they have whatever they're going through, their resent, you know, it, it, it's, and, and what certain politicians do, they exploit that. You know, they tell these people what they want to hear, you know, and not sort of listening and, you know, hear what their grievances are, you know, and it's hard, especially if these people say this is the way it's supposed to be and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we just have to just listen, just listen and engage with people who have grievances, not that, you know, and that that helps that they're being listened to, but um, highly recommend reading reading Friedman's uh, op-ed. Uh, so um, on your device, you can click on that link in the chat box, and it, uh, yeah, it, it will open it, a tab on your computer with that article, so that you can go back after you're done with Zoom and read the article. That's how I've learned to do it, because otherwise, mm -hmm. I. I can't figure out how to save stuff from the chat. So um, click on right, it right just now. Just click on it, and if it opens it up, we'll open it. And, and just keep it open after, and you know, it'll be opened after you close out of your, once you leave the Zoom meeting. Right. So it's hard to be gentle when we're on Zoom, David is saying, when we're not in person. Bert is saying, let's figure this out together. Um, Emma Linda is saying, um, I was thinking about uh, online comments, arguments, and social media echo chambers, right? The, yeah, the ways we're not hearing each other, the ways we're only listening to things that um, affirm what we already believe, right? So it's um, definitely, definitely a challenging time. I think these high holidays for us are a time to remind ourselves um, that we do, we are encumbered by one another, um, by Jews who agree with us, Jews who disagree with us. Um, you know, as Americans, we are encumbered by uh, 
by the project of this uh, democracy, this system that may or may not work, but, um, but to which so many of us are committed and certainly, certainly so many generations of Jews before us worked for believing this was the way forward for Jews and for everybody else who's been marginalized and uh, oppressed and um, silenced is, and disempowered, right, is, is the opportunity to participate in a, in a democracy such as ours. So um, let us figure out ways that we can do tshuva, that we can figure out ways to return to one another, a way we can figure out how to return to the project of the Jewish people, um, of progressive Judaism, a way we can figure out how to shuv, how to return to the project of being responsible participants in this amazing project, the greatest country in the history of the world. Uh, I believe that. I was raised to believe that. I choose to believe that, that this is still the greatest project going. Um, and it's in our hands, right, as is this fragile, amazing planet that we've been given um, into our care. And um, so Chuva, it has just a lot of different resonances for me this year, uh, for us as a community, I think, um, and then figuring out how we return to some kind of um, sanity on the other side of all of this craziness of coronavirus and uh, what's happening with racial injustice. Like, I don't want to go back to the world before all that. This, um, you're getting a preview of a sermon, but I don't want to go back to the world before all that. But I do want us to return. You have a, a sense that we will return to some some kind of normal social interaction, normal social enterprise. And, um, and we have the opportunity now during quarantine to kind of think a little bit about what we want that to look like. What do, what do we want to change? What do we want to be different on the other side of this? And we've never been given a six month break from the distractions of life. And I'm not saying we're not working our fannies off. Many of us are, um, but I'm saying there are some things we've been freed up from forcibly um, we, we've not gotten a six-month break before to kind of go, okay, so what, what do we want to have happen on the other side of this? And that's, that's the work. That's the work now. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.